Thank you, David. Sometimes when you watch a movie, it starts with an action scene that is particularly intense and maybe even dangerous, and then it, it, it goes from there, and then it cuts to another scene, and a lot of times text will pop up underneath it that says something like 12 hours earlier or three days earlier, and then the rest of the movie kind of works back to that climactic scene and where lots of things are going on. And I'd actually like for us to do a little bit of that with Genesis 37 this morning. So I want to give you a snapshot at the end of the chapter, and then I want to go back and we'll work our way to see how we got there at the end of chapter 37. So the end of Genesis 37, you find a 17-year-old named Joseph who is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's a victim of kidnapping and trafficking, which was only slightly better, like that end is only slightly better than what had been considered, and that was just killing him outright. So that's Joseph. At the end of this chapter, you have a group of men, their brothers, who for decades will have their actions on their conscience, what they did to Joseph in destroying, at least attempting to destroy, his life. This was no accident. Scripture says they meant this for evil. They meant for evil to come out of this. And then you have not Joseph or the brothers, but you have Jacob, the dad. And you have a dad who gets lied to by his own sons, misled, and his pride and joy is taken from him. He will never be the same. I imagine he would always go back to that particular event and he would mark time by, yeah, that was the year that we lost Joseph. That was the year we lost Joseph. How do we get there? If that's the end, we go back to the beginning of Genesis 37. How are, how are such bad decisions made? How are so many bad decisions made? How are so many lives wrecked? And the fact is, we all know this, right? When you see and you see first grade pictures, so there's the first grade class, and they're all smiling. Well, not all, but there's always one or two that aren't. But most are smiling, most are looking at the camera, and there they are. And then here's little Johnny. What we don't think about little Johnny is I, I bet he could grow up to lie, murder, traffic a rel- relative. I mean, nobody thinks that. Nobody sets out to just mess up their lives in such a way that there's going to be rippling consequences for dozens of people for dozens of years. Nobody sets out. We see documentaries of celebrities who blow up and we go, I don't want to be a life wrecker. I I don't want to be a family harmer. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the kind of person. Like whoever sets out to just empty their bank account on a whim. Who sets out? Like who really, really sets out in, in, in finer moments and clearer moments of thinking? Who sets out to call it quits on a marriage and just shock their spouse and shock their kids? Who, who decides it's, yeah, I think what I want to do is I want to betray a friendship. Who sets out to cheat at work, to lie for advancement? Who sets out to let pride control them? Who sets out to like just completely break their parents' heart and move in with someone because that's just what they're going to do? Who who sets out, really, at the beginning, if we were to go all the way back to the beginning, who sets out to steal something just because I'm entitled to it, I feel like I should have it? Who, who really wants to wrap their car around a, a telephone pole because of an, addic- an addiction that has taken hold of their life? 
I don't know uh, people that want to find themselves in uh, an emotional affair or other sexual sin. I don't know there are people that want bitterness and anger to so control their life where they become the abusing person verbally or, or physically. They just go after and attack someone again and again and again or deceive loved ones about a gambling problem or financial matters. I mean, do, do you understand? No one wants any of that. No one wants any of that at all. And if we don't want it, how, how does it happen? And that's where... That's where I think Genesis 37, just some attention this morning, is really, really going to help us pay attention to, okay, how does this progress? So you can imagine on Saturday nights at our house, um, most of them, I'm pretty intense knowing Sunday's coming. So I'm, by Saturday night, I'm beginning to, dinner time, I'm beginning to get my thoughts pretty, pretty dialed into uh, preaching a couple times on Sunday morning. And so at dinner last night, uh, one of the kids asked, like, well, what are you talking about tomorrow? And I told him Genesis 37, we're going to talk about Joseph getting sold into slavery. And I saw one of them have a puzzled look and like, well, like, what is that? What does that mean? Or what is kind of the application of that? And so I assured my youngest, well, it means to my youngest, like your older siblings cannot sell you into slavery. God does not want that to happen. So she seemed uh, sufficiently relieved but in all seriousness, when we got a story like Genesis 37 where something just mind-blowing happens, what do we do with it? I think what I'd like to do with it, at least today, is see a progression. There's a lot more going on in Genesis 37, but this progression, I think, will help guard our hearts. Our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. There's no foolproof Kevlar vest that we can, like, like, I'll never get tempted by anything. Not me. No, 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 never. Nothing will come to me. That's not the case. There are ways that seem right that end up being ways of death. Deadly ways, Proverbs tells us. So many of the things going on in Genesis 37, that's like a progression. I don't want you to think of sin as a foregone conclusion, but I do want you to see the progression and kind of mark it out. So we're going to begin reading in Genesis 37 and verse 1, and Rachel Sproul's going to come up and read verses 1 to 11 of Genesis 37. So Rachel, come up. Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's surgeonings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, 
and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Thank you for reading, Rachel. I want to discern a progression of bad decisions. Maybe by helping it, it would be worth our time if God could, like, if we could be satisfied with him to the point where we're not looking elsewhere. That would be a really good use of processing this text. So where does a progression like this start where what I described at the end, how, how do we get there? Well, it actually starts even before you read one word in Genesis 37. And again, I want to walk through this progression in the first place that all of these things start is with the heart. With the heart. What we know from the Bible is that the heart can be drawn to evil things. It can be insensitive to things of the Lord. By the heart, I mean the control panel, what you want, how you think, how you see things, what story you tell yourself, what matters to you, what your ambitions are. The heart, what we find even before we get to Genesis 37 is Joseph, the brothers of Joseph. So the oldest brother, Reuben, has committed incest. The second and third oldest brothers, Simeon and Levi, have uh, avenged and, and gotten revenge, but in a brutal way and just like wiped out a whole city. What we find out in Genesis 38 is the next brother, Judah, has gone into a prostitute. So you begin to see things going on in the heart, and we know that no one's perfect, but if we don't guard our hearts, if we don't pay attention to our hearts, there may be things that you'd say right now, Curtis, it's impossible. I would never do that. I may do a lot of bad things. I would never do that. And yet we just can't say that with any amount of certainty, knowing our hearts, which can go to a lot of places. But you add to the heart something that actually is in Genesis 37, and that's this word, environment. The environment. The environment that we might say, because of that, that is going to actually cause or be a condition where I can at least blame some of that for my own poor decision making. The environment and the conditions, like if, if you knew what I had to go through, if you knew what we had to live through, that is kind of why this has unfolded in my life. The environment of Joseph and Joseph's brothers and Joseph's dad, the environment there is terrible. It is awful. I talked about it a little bit last week, but now you begin to see and hear more. So the environment is one in which that we read Here's part of the environment. Joseph, it says he brings a bad report to his dad about his brothers. And any sibling knows that's never going to go well. The bad report is just information meant to present someone in a negative light. And we have no reason to think Joseph was lying about this bad report. It seems like, no, I mean, his brothers seem like they were regularly doing things of which there's reason to have bad reports. But then we, we add to that a dad who played favorites. And Maybe this is just a reminder. I know this isn't the point of the text, but maybe another reminder for all the parents in the room to just one more reminder that you play favorites and decades down the road, there are issues because of this. So this is just worth us kind of taking mental note to at least take inventory again. Am I doing that in any way? Because there are consequences. We got a dad that played favorites and then we got a dad that actually put that favoritism. It's one thing to play favorites and kind of everybody may know, yeah, she's the favorite, he's the favorite. But this dad, like put that front and center to everybody by giving Joseph this coat or this robe 
this coat of many colors, this robe of many pieces, different translations have it. And this isn't like, yeah, there was that one Christmas where Joseph really got the, he got the Patagonia coat, like he got the best coat, like that. This isn't that. This coat was a a signal to everybody else. As a matter of fact, a lot of times this word coat or robe of pieces and often that was like a robe of royalty where everybody would take notice someone has honored this person and said they should be the one like in charge or they should be the one recognized. So when Joseph gets this again, he's not getting the best Christmas present one Christmas. He is getting his dad's recognition of him and not you and not you and not you, but him. And so this is the environment, and over time, those, that, environment, that environment can go to work on us. There's another way that, again, this progression goes, and that is like a pattern, a pattern of behavior begins to get reinforced. Again, let's just notice, notice what's going on, the heart, the environment, the pattern. So the pattern here is, I just wanted to call your attention to one particular thing, and that is joseph's brothers feelings towards joseph and actually the pattern begins to develop in verse four it says that they hate joseph and they can't even say a peaceful word to him they can't even talk to joseph so that so that's where you kind of enter into joseph and his brothers how's that going not good they can't even talk to him peacefully but then it grows in verse five he tells them a dream and it says they hate him even more so it 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 is growing as a side note it's like it's hard to know exactly how we're supposed to think of joseph Is he just uh, like a a spoiled brat? Uh, I mean, he's a teenager, so there's probably some some sense of immaturity. If I'm talking to 17-year-old Joseph, I may say, you may want to keep your dreams to yourself. I mean, probably that would be our advice. We would do that. We would say that. It's hard to know because Scripture doesn't actually present him as doing something like he shouldn't be doing, like shame on Joseph. You read Genesis and you give it a fair reading, you don't get that. You do get a young man trying to process what dreams he's had that are pretty significant. If anything, it seems not wise, but these dreams do play, uh, they seem to be revelation from God that are going to play a significant role going forward. So I think we have to at least mark that. But what it says, though, is when he tells the dreams, it says they hate him even more for his words and his dreams. Again, you see this pattern of hatred grow, grow. By the time you get to verse 11, it says they are jealous of him. It's not just like, we can't stand Joseph, but no one wants to be Joseph. They're actually jealous. We wish we could have that kind of attention. We wish we got that. We wish we got those kinds of gifts. They're actually jealous of him. The pattern has developed. With each verse, the pattern is getting darker and darker. And you actually have a recipe for some dark things to happen. So, even you do quick inventory of the heart. And this is a reminder, right? The heart can go a lot of places. That's why we're told in Proverbs 4 to guard your heart. Keep it with like all vigilance. Like you want to make sure you watch what's going on in, in what you feel and what you see and the story you're telling yourself and what matters to you. We have hearts and minds that need to be renewed and transformed by God's grace. We have to meditate on the Lord's instructions day and night according to Psalm 1 because that does something to our heart and we've got to make sure our heart's in the right place. How is your heart? And then how are you reading the environment you are in? Because I would imagine there are, there are areas of lots of people in this room, areas of your life where the circumstances are very unfair and very difficult and very challenging. And maybe at some points unreasonable. Man, it breaks my heart when I talk to people and I hear the work environment or the home environment they're in. To hear how they're talked talk to, to hear how they're treated. I think that just should not be. 
But my question, maybe a bigger question today is, what are you doing with that environment that you are in? What story are you telling yourself? Are you following where that could lead as you reflect more and more on that environment? And are there patterns that are beginning to develop that, that might tempt you to excuse something instead of actually dealing with it going on in your own life? Have you talked to anybody about like where your heart is and some patterns? Like Even in the early stages, have you, have you dealt with that? Have you talked to anybody? Have you thought about it? So that's where we begin with this story as you continue reading. And I want to invite you to do that because I just want you to see the words for yourself. Look at verse 12. So let's continue to walk through this story even after what Rachel read. Verse 12 says, Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing, pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Joseph says, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word. So Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. That's about 50 miles, which is, oh, that doesn't take very long these days, but this would be, when we've got a 17-year-old, this would be a pretty significant trip over miles in the Middle East. It says he, he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the field, so he can't exactly find what he's looking for, Joseph. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the, men, and the man said, well, they've, they've gone away, so they've left here. For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So that's about 10 or 15 miles away, further away. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. So Jacob sends his son, his favorite son, we know it's his favorite son, he sends them to find his brothers, which it seems like if you're Jacob, you are missing all the cues, misreading all the signals that they actually hate him. So if you're a father, like, what, what are you doing? But somewhere he is not aware that this is going on. At least I, I feel like that's a reasonable thing to read and appreciate here. And so Joseph is finding, trying, trying to find his brothers, and this long before the days of find my friends, you know, or something like that. Like, he doesn't know where they are, so he's got to rely on word, and it just so happens, and there are no coincidences in the story, it just so happens he runs across the person who says, yeah, I know where they are, they're at this city, and so off Joseph goes. And in that moment, you, get, you begin to feel the drama builds, because now the moment comes, it says in verse 18, they saw Joseph, the brothers saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And if we're at the next place in the progression, we're at the place where there's opportunity. It's one thing to watch and watch and watch and not really have an opportunity, but now there is an opportunity. I don't know how they recognize him. Is it by his robe, his coat? But I do know they remember the dreams. Here comes the dreamer. And the opportunity, it seems like they're prepared to do something now. I think it's really, really important you begin to ask the question. I'm not talking about just one thing. I'm talking about lots of areas in our life. What do we do when the opportunities to do the wrong thing come our way? Because surely sometime in life that's going to happen where you can act out what you've been thinking. You can do so where it doesn't seem like there's a lot of restrictions. You can get what you want. You can do what you want. Where transparency is somehow kind of absent. Nobody's going to know. Or if they... You can kind of cover this one up and nobody's going to find out where it seems reasonable and the pressure begins to mount. You've got to consider this. I've got to consider what am I going to do in that opportunity or am I convinced, am I convinced that in that moment 
I'm going to cry out to the Lord for a way of escape. Or that moment of bitterness or that thing that just triggers this certain action or what am I going to do in that moment? I've got to I've got to think about that beforehand. What would be some action steps now to prepare for some of those moments? But the brothers, they just take advantage of the opportunity. As a matter of fact, look at verse 20. It says, come now. And like who's leading the charge? I don't know, but it seems like they're saying to each other, come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. So not only is there opportunity, but there's an escalation of it. And the escalation is kind of that everybody's together. And now we're not just kind of on a whim because, all right, everybody says like, you know, what? I'd, I'd like to there's a hundred one of those things that we think about that we never act on, but then there's sometimes where it begins to escalate and it becomes more plausible of like, no, no, this could go down today. This could really happen. We could take care of this Joseph stuff and we could be done with it now. And here's what we could do. Here's how the cover-up could work for this. So I just want us to realize how, how these things escalate. And certainly, like other people who are thinking terrible things like that, this is not a good influence in anybody's life which is why I think parents want to tell their kids, like, you better choose your friends wisely because your, your friends often determine your future. That's why we're dialed into that and we want to say that a million times, like, be careful who your friends are. But I don't think that stops somehow magically when you're 18. Like, how many times have the, the guys at work or the girls at work or the person that only tells you what you want to hear anyway, how often has that led to just like I can justify it because she said she didn't see anything wrong with that. I mean, we know we can play these games with ourselves. So you see the escalation that comes. They, they say we can not only murder him, but we can throw him in a pit, dispose of the evidence, and we actually have a decent story. Yeah, accidents happen. It's terrible. We're all really sad about it. And they make a connection back to the dream like, then what will become of his dreams? And we think, and they think, man, we'll get exactly what we want. But the deal is with sin, with bad decisions like this, you, you, you never get exactly what you want. Because the price tag is too much. It's never satisfying. It will always cost more than you want to give. It will always do that. The story takes a, a different kind of turn, though. It says in verse 21, like there's a contrast, all right? This is all going down. But when Reuben heard it, so Reuben's the firstborn, he's the oldest, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, well, let's not take his life. Like, we can't kill people here, okay? Let's not do that. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but we can. You mentioned a pit. Let's throw him into the pit. And then we're in the wilderness, so who knows what will happen to when, when we're gone. But, like, let's, just, let's, not, let's not kill anybody. Let's not lay a hand on him. And, and Reuben's trying to, trying to do something here. He's kind of rationalizing the whole behavior. He's trying to live in, in a couple different places. He's trying to go with his brothers. He's saying, let's, let's just deal with Joseph. But he's also, he's got a secret plan that he can come back to him, rescue him, get him back to dad. And like, it's a mess, but it, we can make this work. So Reuben's got the plan so that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. But it says in verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, it seems like Reuben's not present for some reason, which, which, Sometimes it's like, oh, I wish they had put him, like, what happened to Reuben? Because it doesn't seem like he's calling any shots in the air. It says, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Reuben is the oldest, and he should speak up. He does speak up, but I guess he's too weak or something's not working, and now the rationalizations come. 
like, oh, we don't need to kill anybody, but maybe, maybe we could do something here. And the coat comes up, maybe as a reminder, like, yeah, let's take his coat. And, you know, by the way, that coat just reminds us he has been a pain to deal with. And dad's relationship with him has been such a pain to deal with. And at least we won't have to deal with that anymore. Maybe they're thinking at least, at least we can say we didn't kill anybody. Where there's some rationalizations, I think there had to have been. There, always, there, there always are some. Then it says in verse 25, and I just want you to notice the first few words of verse 25. It says, then they sat down to eat. And the writer didn't have to include that. And I think he included it for a, a significant reason. And that is to show us the callousness of which they're operating now. Because what we're told in Genesis 42, we're not told here, but we're told in Genesis 42, his brothers are crying, or Joseph is crying out to his brothers. He's pleading with them. He's screaming, like, don't do this. And they're like, could you pass me some more? You got, you got seconds you need any more? I mean, there's something going on here that's terribly wrong. It's almost like, yeah, they, it was dinner time. Of course they sat down to eat. There's a callousness. A callousness that grows when, when we deaden or just like cover over layer after layer after layer. This is the way callous works. And our sensitivity toward the things of the Holy Spirit begins to just deaden and go away. No longer do we even think about it. They sat down to eat. We, we see the progression. It gets uglier and uglier. It says they sat down to eat in verse 25. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. It's like at just that time, and the camels had gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah, the, the fourth brother in line, he speaks up and says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's do this. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So again, you hear a little bit of a rationalization there. Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And what you have in that moment is that is the moment of decision. But it's actually more like the moment of a series of decisions. And actually, when you see it out listed out, out like that, you realize oh, this wasn't just a moment. Like, this wasn't just one moment that happened. Now you begin to see this is the progression of where this was going. You begin to see how it began to unfold. The decision, like, we don't have to deal with murder. We don't have to deal with incriminating evidence. Judah has the idea, it actually can be a win-win here. We can get rid of Joseph, and we can make some money. And we can move on. We can act like it's a surprise when, we, when we've made that decision. We've made that decision that impacts others, that hurts others, that goes down the path that we didn't want to go down. We can act like, man, I... And this is the way the PR campaigns work. And we have our own personal PR campaign. This is the way they work for individuals and corporations. This is not who we are. That's what we want to tell ourselves. This is not who we are. This is not who I am. I'm going to be a better version of myself from it. This is not who I am. But the reality with the progression that helps us see is, no, this is. 
This is where your heart, and this is what you did with the environment. And this is what you did in the moment of opportunity. These are the rationalizations you made. There's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. We do ask, like, what was I thinking? But now you get a bigger picture and you go, I can see exactly what, what I was thinking. It was horribly wrong, but I can see it. I can track it. What you find after that decision, it's kind of the remainder of Genesis, is what I'll call the aftermath. The aftermath of the decision. The aftermath that you think you're solving one problem and you, you create 15 more. Things change because of the aftermath. Things change for Reuben with this aftermath. As Reuben comes back to the pit and he, didn't, he saw Joseph's not in the pit, he says he tears his clothes in, verse 29, he, verse 30, he returns to his brothers and says, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? I mean, you kind of like, Reuben, are you so self-centered? Like, what about Joseph? And all he can think about is me. Like, oh, there goes my inheritance. Look what you guys did. I'm all messed up now. Because of what you guys did, I have had my life ruined now. Reuben's life has changed. It says in verse 31, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors. They brought it to their father and they said, We found this. Could you identify it? Whether it's your son's, that's very significant too, like your son's robe, not our brother's robe, but your son, you know, your favorite. Could you identify, is this his? Things change for the brothers. Things change for Jacob. Notice how in verse 33 it says, and Jacob identified it and said, it is my son's robe. And I can't help but think this is full on sobbing as the worst nightmare for Jacob has happened and he says a fierce animal has devoured him Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces and I can't help but think like if we're in if we're just a, an observer maybe an invisible observer we would probably be looking at the brothers looking at each other kind of going we didn't even have to tell dad a lie he got there on his own we just kind of produced and asked a question and maybe they Maybe they sleep at night thinking, you know, we didn't lie. And we actually, we actually didn't kill him. But you and I know, both know we can, we can tell ourselves those things. And that may work for a night or two. But eventually those things haunt us deeply. We, we, we can appreciate the aftermath. Even if we want to like technically say, I really didn't. I never really did lie to you, dad. We all know better than that. Jacob tears his garments, he puts sackcloth on his loins, mourn for his son for many days. It's like, my life is done. And hypocritically here, notice what happens in verse 35. I mean, it's, it's so distasteful. But, but I also find it, it's very plausible. I can figure out, I, I don't have to make too many mental leaps to figure out how they do this. It says all his sons and all his daughters rise up to comfort him. Oh, dad, we're so sorry too. I mean, this is, this is really horrible. He refused to be comforted. He said, no, 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 I will go down to my grave. I will go down Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Things have changed for all people. And it's changed for Joseph. We'll, we'll pick up with Joseph going forward. But it says the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. As I read Genesis 37, and you can imagine to, to try to teach it and try to, try to bring some thoughts together, one thing that struck me is 
God's not mentioned. God's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. With the way it unfolds, you can kind of appreciate, like, I'm glad no one at least, like, tried to blame God for any actions there. But I do see, even as we process the story, I want you, I want you to see God's hand and God's writing in all of this. I want you to see God's, like God's grace show up in several ways and in specific ways this morning. So it may be that as we kind of walk through that full progression, what God's grace may be to you is remind you that, that decisions lead somewhere, that a heart leads somewhere. That may be God's grace to you. God may be showing up, not in Genesis 37 visibly, but here this morning telling you, you may think that you can sin without cost, but, but don't be deceived. Or it may be that God's grace shows up to you, reminding, your, reminding you, reminding me that we could tell ourselves like, man, I, I, about five people I know need to hear that, this message. Because they're messing up their lives right now. But this would tell us, no, no, God's grace is to us to tell us, you could be the one, I could be the one. With the right or the wrong set of circumstances. Where are we? Wherever it seems to be, God's grace could come to us even in that progression and go, you feel like you're in number three or number four, that progression, today is the day where you could turn. You don't have to keep going down this road. God's mercy could be like aligning everything up as a teenager for you to be here today, aligning everything for you to be here this moment, knowing you know what the last few weeks, you know what you've contemplated, but God says, I've got your attention now. You, you must turn. You've got to turn, talk to somebody, confess, repent. Or it may be that God's grace to you comes in a different way, and that's like, no, no, Curtis, you don't understand. I, I don't have an opportunity to turn. I already messed it up. I already messed it up. Aftermath, that's where I'm living. What I want you to hear is God's grace can come even in the aftermath which is never an excuse to make poor decisions, never an excuse to hurt the people we love, but a, a strong realization that God's grace can come to you. As a matter of fact, you may think, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. Well, yeah, that's the story of humanity. We're not worthy. We don't deserve grace to be shown to us. But that mercy comes again and again, God's faithful love, his steadfast love to us. There's mercy to you today. No one in this room, no one's just ridden off. You're, you're here today. You're hearing this. So what, what are you going to do about that? Will you turn to Jesus? And as I read this story, I can't help but like hear echoes of another story, and that is I, I hear of this son, and I think of Jesus who's the one who is like the, the faithful, beloved son, and the one who is the true good guy. I mean, Joseph, we're not so sure exactly who he is, but we know Jesus was perfect. We know he was innocent, and yet we know he was hated and rejected. We know there was a plot to take his life. He was betrayed and handed over. And what we know with Jesus is no one intervened. There was no Reuben in that occasion. No one intervened. No one spoke up. Everybody watched him go to the cross. Everybody watched him be hung on the cross for something that he never did. No one intervened, and in that moment, he died for the sins of those who would turn from everything else and say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I've made decisions. I'm living with aftermath. I need your mercy. I need your grace. 
I, I, I could wreck my life. I need your mercy. I need you to save me from a thousand sorrows. Lord, I need you. He's the one who had mercy then and he has mercy on sinners today. He welcomes, he forgives, he changes. And yet I do think there's one more piece of God's grace in this story that I want you to know. If you're driving down the road, sometimes you see these signs that say road work ahead. It's like Genesis 37. I just want you to realize you could write on Genesis 37, God's work is ahead here. He's not done with this story. He's not done with Jacob. He's not done with the brothers. He's not done with Joseph. He's not done with Egypt. He's not done with the promised land. There is a story that he is going to write. And in the midst of just the mess of sin, God is at work ahead. Keep your eye on the story he's writing. And if he could work through this, if he could work through this mess, both in Joseph's life and his brother's life and in Jacob's life, then I am confident he can work in your life. I'm confident that three years, five years, a hundred years, a million years ahead of now, God could show his amazing grace in your life. And what I want to do right now is pray that you would believe that. Pray that you would receive that grace and receive that mercy. Let me do that. Father, I thank you for this story. And as much as we see just the uh, progression of bad decisions that are wicked and hurt people, we see interwoven in that your son who received all the pain and suffering of those bad decisions. I thank you for the hope and mercy that is just interwoven in this. We're thankful that life does not end at the end of Genesis 37. Father, I pray for the person processing aftermath today where life is a lot more complicated and you can't erase things and things don't change and consequences you do have to live with. But oh Lord, I pray we would be so confident of your mercy that we would lean to you, not run from you. We will only do that because of your Holy Spirit working. So our lives, we commit them to you because you are the only one who can keep us from falling, from stumbling, from wrecking our lives. Lord, hold on to us even when we seem to be losing our grip on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.